Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Kevin Poulton is a cycling coach who has worked for top teams such as Katusha and athletes like Caleb Ewan and Alex Dowsett. In 2016, Kevin coached Matt Heyman to victory in the infamous Paris-Roubaix Classic. That victory came after a unique training regime of indoor-only workouts, an unheard-of concept previously thought to be inferior to outdoor-focused training. Kevin shares some amazing insights into how he manages the training of some of the best cyclists in the world by leveraging what he has learned about indoor cycling, carbohydrate manipulation, and heat adaptation. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Kevin Poulton, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the CoachCast. Yeah, hi, Dirk. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, uh, you're down in Australia right now, and I'm in, up in Colorado. So uh, awesome that we got to uh, arrange this. And um, how's things going with, uh, obviously, you guys are pretty well protected from the whole COVID. And are you, is your race scene back to almost normal down there? Uh, it is at the moment. Look, obviously, as you mentioned there, Australia is in a good position in terms of COVID. Uh, but look, me, I'm actually missing airports and I'm missing that feeling of jet lag as well. So, right. yeah, I hope everyone is you know, staying safe out there and, and we're all looking forward to getting back to some sort of normality. And yeah, just yeah, stay safe, look after yourselves, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't you give us some background about yourself, how you got into cycling and, and, and into coaching and to this point now? Yeah, well, look, um, I'm sort of mid-40s now, mid to late 40s. Um, I got into cycling. Uh, I'm actually glad you asked that question. So <laughs> in Australia, back in oh, early 90s, there wasn't much cycling on TV at all. And we had a, a TV show on Saturday morning called Wide World of Sports. And I yeah. remember one day they had this segment. And I remember it was, I think it's John Tesh, is that the – Right, yeah. Yeah, so he was Absolutely. commentating, um, it was Paris-Roubaix on Wild World of right. Sports. It was like a- I watched the same thing probably. Yeah, it was a two-minute <laughs> segment of Paris-Roubaix on this, normally a football show in Australia, and they showed cycling, and it was a wet Paris-Roubaix, and there was the color of the jerseys and the bikes and, and the, the drama of the race and so on. And from that moment, I just I fell in love with cycling. And then, you know, fast forward 25, 30 years later, and then- I got to stand in the middle of the velodrome and, and watch someone you coach win Roubaix. It was just an amazing sort of not closure, but just an end to that that journey of falling in love with cycling through seeing Roubaix on TV and then being able to watch someone win it was was just a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. So so then you started racing, and how does that lead to coaching? Yeah, look like everybody else. Uh, you, you try your hand at racing, and you, and you want to be professional, and so on, and, and you follow those dreams. And then, look, obviously, uh, I wasn't good enough, and, and no problem um, yeah, having, having that out there. Um, but also at the same time, I was at university when I was racing and, and um, studying sports science and, and going down that path and, and coaching from um, my university days, and um, had some success with junior athletes going to worlds and so on, and. And it just really um, lit a fire of enjoying working with other people and 
and it really comes down to I really uh, respect and understand the commitment that they make to training and if you're asking someone to go and ride seven hours tomorrow, you need to have a good reason why they're going to do that. So <laughs> I, I would like to have um, informed decisions when I, when I prescribe training for people. And did uh, any education come along the way uh, that helped you with, with coaching? Well, obviously, uh, the university degree is a huge part of that um, stepping stone. But then what I've found since is, like everybody else, we read all the, the papers that are released and so on. And But my biggest takeaway from that is the research is fantastic and we need that. We need the, the sports scientists in the lab doing the studies. But quite often... Just be aware these studies are not flawed, but they're um, in different populations and small groups. So there is a, a different way to interpret it. So read all the papers, but then put them in place yourself and make your own decision based on it. And indoor training is the best example of that. Um, so we'll talk about that in a moment. But yeah, obviously keep educating yourself, um, but have an open mind to what you read. Try these things and then make your own decision from there. How about your coaching career? How do you go from wanting to coach to now coaching world tour teams and Perry Roubaix winners? How, how did your coaching evolve through the years? And when did you when did you start? Yeah, so I think, oh, geez, going back now, probably nineteen ninety eight. Um, yeah, finishing university there. Uh, and actually, I've got a quick question for you, Dirk. Yeah, I, I was one of the first. Um, I guess people to come on board with training peaks, and I've tried to find out when my first file was downloaded. But what was the uh, yeah. year that Training Peaks was actually released? Yeah, I was going to say kind of parallel when you mentioned 1998. I mean, I started coaching in '96, and then in because of the pain of the job using fax machine yeah. and email attachments for for power files, um, you know, we, we started Training Peaks in 1999, but publicly probably not really until September of 2000 yeah. is when we really kind of started taking, we had a, a coach group and we had about 30 athletes and we were really testing using training peaks with them. Um, but we launched under the name of trainingbible.com, And that mm. was because of my father's uh, book series. And yeah. he had the name recognition and the, and the books, which kind of gave us a leg up with, with um, advertising. And then, couple years later we we changed it to training peaks simply because we knew we were agnostic to any yeah. one coach and we didn't want to be purely aligned to one book series so um i'm not sure i can de i'll definitely look you up after this and yeah, let yeah. you know your and let you know your user uh, id and what your first file was <laughs> yeah look i think i'm 2001, 2003, thereabouts, something okay. like that. So, yeah, sorry to digress there, but it's awesome. something I've always been no. wanting, wanting to know. But, yeah, yeah, look, getting back to how you go from being a university student and coach to, to world tour, um, right. I think the main thing for me is that I enjoy working with other coaches and, and very open and enjoy that conversation um, with other coaches. We've all got different ideas and different ways of doing things, and that collegiality for me is very important. Um, look, obviously, success breeds success and opportunities. So it's always handy to have athletes doing well. Um, mm -hmm. But I really just think it's um, coming down to, to making the most of opportunities when they arise. Um, and right. I'm seeing, you know, making some tough decisions sometimes to, 
know, go down a different path and, and take a risk. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one to answer. I guess one thing leads to another, but obviously when you're coaching and, and riders are doing well, people want to come on board, um, other athletes, and then teams start to speak. And then, But if you get the opportunity and you're not prepared for it, then obviously it's not going to be successful. So, And, and in this pandemic world at the moment, communication and organisation is such a huge aspect of our coaching for every coach out there. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a full-time business, isn't it? Just being, keeping relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, things just evolve and progress. And before you know it, you, you know, things kind of get out ahead of you. I assume you would say that your coaching has changed over the 20 years. Your, maybe some of your basic theories or programming um, methodology, has that evolved over 20 years? Yeah, definitely. It's obviously a long conversation, this one. I still have some of the first training plans that I wrote, and I think like you, we're probably similar age by the sounds of it, um, handwritten on a piece of paper and given to the athlete who was living local, and then you get it back from them at the end of the week. Um, right. And I look at those training sessions, it was like ride for two hours today. Uh, didn't say anything about how hard or up or down <laughs> or anything like that. It was just ride for two hours. So obviously come a long way from uh, those days. But obviously, the biggest probably influence is the metrics we can collect now as well. So the more data we collect, the more decisions we can make and the more things we can monitor. But at the end of the day, it's about selling your philosophy to your athlete. And when they have confidence, um, that's when you know you've made that connection and you can really start coaching. Uh, I guess probably a good recent example is just from three days ago um, after a rider finished uh, Catalonia, headed into Flanders, the message before Flanders was, I trust you in, in the text mm -hmm. message. And when you get that from an athlete, that's when you know that, okay, things are going well. Um, you obviously need to keep on top of things, but when you have that trust with the athlete because you've kept up to date with the latest methods and technology, that's that's what coaching's all about. Yeah, it's a two-way street. You know, you, you have responsibility to the athlete, they have responsibility back to you, but you as a coach hold, holding your word, you know, and and I guess letting them know you are there behind the scenes looking, you know, daily. And, you know, there's accountability both ways. So that's really cool when you get that t type of text message like you just mentioned. Yeah, um, but I guess, sorry, yeah. just to, sorry, just yeah. to leading on from that. Yeah. The other part to that is um, really connecting with other coaches as well. So it's mm. it's a funny one coaching uh it's difficult and this is where i really respect all coaches out there and i like to listen to all coaches because in many ways we are underrated uh i guess the best example i can give is uh at, at world tour level uh this might be controversial i always try not to be controversial but uh <laughs> when when a rider does well in a race the director sportif fantastic work from him very happy uh, when the rider doesn't do well, straight to the coach, what went wrong today? So ah. <laughs> we're, we're always accountable uh, and we're always uh, not at risk, but, yeah, where if things don't work out, you obviously go to the coach. I think that's in all sports, football, cycling, whatever, athletics, it's, it's always back to the coach. But one thing I've noticed um, is that at all levels of coaching, we seem to be quite – 
protective of our ideas and information. And this is where social media has really sort of opened up that. But also, if you make your philosophy public, you're also open to criticism as well. So I understand that side of it as well. But I'd really encourage all coaches to listen to each other, support each other, um, and, and just embrace the field that we're in. Um, I can give you a, a good example of when I was at Katusha, head, to, head coach of Katusha, uh, I stepped into a role with it was myself, an Australian, a Russian, and an Italian, three very different cultures. Uh, and, and initially, we were all a bit sort of standoffish as to you know, different cultures, different methods, and so on. Uh, but within a matter of, of weeks, two months, we're best friends, and we would have these um, you know, Zoom meetings of uh, the Italian, the Australian, and the Russian trying to communicate. Yeah. And it was just a, a good example of how you would go from different methods, different cultures to working very well together because we were very open with our philosophy and our, our style. So that goes for all levels of coaching. Yeah, there are very successful coaches that are sharing a whole lot of knowledge and it doesn't hold them back. Mm. But yet you do hear this from other coaches where they don't want to give away their secrets, but yet there aren't very many secrets. And each athlete, you have to untap the secret within each individual athlete. Yeah. There isn't just some broad methodology that works for everybody. Exactly. There's no secrets out there. It's everything that, that we know today is is released. Uh, you can you can uh, search the latest papers or talk to coaches and so on. But as we said, it's about having that connection with the athlete to go and do what you've asked them to do and give them a reason to to do it to the best of their ability. That's that's the coaching art. Right. Well, one of the secrets you've kind of stumbled upon almost by accident, and it's been you know, coming out uh, over the last few years is certainly a story about Maddie Heyman. And can you go into that experience and what it led you to? Uh, so for those folks that don't know his history or big victory? Yeah. So as you said, it was in some ways forced upon me, this this indoor training. Um, it had been around forever. Um, again, going back to university days, uh, we were using indoor training there. I think it's something that we've all used in our coaching um, toolbox, indoor training. Um, but with Matt Heyman, I was coaching him uh, in 2016 and we'd had a good preseason in Australia. He was ready to go to Europe and, and perform in the classics. Matt at the time was uh, getting towards what we thought was the end of his career in 2016. Um, and in the first classic of the season, Het Newsblad, he's crashed and, and broken his wrist. And I was actually in Australia at the time watching that race on TV and, and I saw uh, Matt crash and the helicopter photo was Matt on the side of the road. And, and Matt always gets up straight away when he crashes. And when I saw him go and sit on the side of the road and hold his wrist, I said to my wife next to me in the lounge, there goes the, the classic season. Um, he's, right. he's out for the next you know, six weeks or so. So after that accident in that race, I actually gave Matt uh, a bit of space for a couple of days uh, because I knew he'd be disappointed. And I was expecting to hear from Matt saying, you know, broken my wrist, uh, classics are over, let's um, recalibrate for the, the later part of the season. And then four days later or three days, I, I get a message uh, in training peaks from Matt and he says, oh, yeah? I'm, on, I'm on the indoor trainer, I'm on this thing called Zwift. Um, 
let's keep training. And I was like, okay, I better, I better come up to speed on how we're going to implement indoor training for the next four weeks. So, uh, wow. like everybody else, indoor training had been part of my, my toolbox you know, for, for poor weather or maybe for a specific interval session. We'd always used it, but never, right. never to the extent of preparing for the hardest one day race in the world for four weeks indoors. Um, yeah, so we spent the next four weeks um, training twice a day, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but the, the result of this is Matt came out and, and won the hardest one-day race in the world um, quite convincingly. And it's really – we spoke earlier about all the scientific studies and papers that we read and so on, but I really reflect on this four-week period with Matt and the result, and that's just the best study when someone is forced to do it in the real world, out of the lab, and then in in the hardest event. And the result is that you just know that something has happened. Like Matt was 36 at the time. He tried to win this race so many times. He had tried every method. He had some of the best coaches in the world and his best result was, was 10th twice, I think, before his victory in 2016. So obviously we know something happened, something very special. Um, and it was after that, we started to really look a bit closer at, okay, what actually, where did the gains come from in that block of training indoors? Um, how can we re replicate that in the future uh, to do it again? Uh, and it just started a whole journey of um, of experimentation and also some quite successful methods since then. Yeah. So how do you break down indoor training? It isn't just inherent that that indoor training makes you better. What, what is it that you, that it came down to, you know, some people might say, well, you know, you don't, you never coast. So therefore you're going to gain 20% right there. Yeah. Um, constant power output. You're going to gain something there. Um, you know, obviously now heat, you know, yeah. you know that, that was always thought of as a hindrance. Yeah. You know, why would I, even to this day, you know, it's, it's more about staying cool, stay cool, stay cool, stay cool, even in training we push, you know, we try and get rid of mm. being in this heat state. Um, but then now you start to embrace that. Exactly. Oh, you've said that's the word there. I love this conversation now. Embrace the heat in training. So this is where the gains came from. And everything you said there is what we've sort of touched on um, in hindsight. So as you said, you're indoors, you're constantly pedaling. The muscles are always under tension. You never free will. Whereas when you're outdoors, you might come up to a stop sign or the lights and you get out of the seat, you stretch for a few seconds, the muscles relax and release, and then you go back into tension there. So the pedal stroke is different. The tension is different. So there, there's one going there. Uh, the heat is, is the big one there, obviously. So this is – and I'm quite often asked a question about Matt Heyman. Would he have won Roubaix without the indoor training block? And I'm mm. adamant the answer is no. So mm. what, what he gained by training indoors and that heat adaptation, the increase in VO2, the increase in blood plasma, which comes from that heat, that's the biggest gain that we have got from indoor training. And in that race in 2016, there was a few examples where he's in the breakaway and he accidentally rode away from the breakaway. So he was so aerobically efficient. He was <laughs> accidentally in Perry Roubaix. Accidentally right away from the breakaway. It's incredible. But he was right. so efficient. But then also in the finale, it was one of the, the best Roubaix where the last 10 kilometers was full of lots of attacks and really high intensity racing. 
but he was able to cover everything. He even had uh, the accident where Stannard almost pushed him off the road. He almost crashed. He had to chase back from there. So because he was so aerobically efficient in the early part of the race, obviously all that glycogen was preserved for the finale and he had so much to give in the last you know, 20 minutes of racing and, and it obviously came down to the sprint. So it all came back to the increased core body temperature in training indoors uh, and what we gained from there. So he was his VO2 was at a level we hadn't seen before. Uh, he was so aerobically efficient, so glycogen preservation was there. Everything came together. But if it wasn't for the entertainment of indoor training, he wouldn't have been able to complete. He was doing 20 hours a week of indoor riding leading up for four weeks leading up to Roubaix. So without the entertainment aspect, no one could do that. It's just mentally uh, very difficult. So that's where it now leads on to the conversation about when we train indoors, I ask coaches this question, what's more important training indoors, the actual intensity of the session or the volume? And we can look mm. at it in different ways now. So mm. there is that entertainment factor of, of training indoors and we can race indoors, we can do social rides, we can do specific training. But if indoor training is part of your methodology as a coach, I really recommend if we can do blocks of indoor training, whether that be you know, two or three sessions in a row during the week, or leading into a race, you might do a block of, of 10 days of, of indoor riding leading into a race as well. So we get the, the benefits of this heat adaptation. So um, look, leading on from Roubaix, um, obviously Matt was very successful there. And what we did after that was obviously we analysed the, the results and the improvements and we know where they came from. And I just alluded to there, we... Since then, we have now used blocks of indoor training leading into Grand Tours. And this is, uh, it might sound crazy, but leading into a Grand Tour, we're doing a block of indoor training for 10 days, which finishes four days out from a Grand Tour and then going wow. and riding through a Grand Tour. And the guys wow. are performing at, at their best. It's, it's a, It was a, not a risky concept, but this is where it was a difficult concept to, to sell originally to, to some of the athletes. But once they've experienced the results once, I've had guys do it twice in a year for the Giro and the Vuelta, block of indoor training leading into a Grand Tour. And and these, these are guys that they're not winning the Grand Tour, but they're um, the, the domestics of, of the of the race. And mm -hmm. they report back to me that the third week of a Grand Tour, they're riding two groups ahead on the mountains where they normally would be. Instead of being in the Gruppetto, <laughs> they're riding further up the mountain because they've still got the benefits of that indoor block leading into it. So, But also it's not just we talk about the heat and how it benefits us in performing in um, hot conditions and mild conditions. At the same time, there's has been studies released, and you can argue this both ways through the papers that you find, that training indoors with increased core body temperature actually makes us more efficient in cold weather as well. So we actually put this in place for Strada Bianchi in the years mm. since 20, 2016 for Roubaix. Uh, so we had guys doing an indoor block leading into Strada Bianchi, which is early March in Europe. Quite often the weather was very bad. And in these editions, the weather was uh, wet, cold, windy, and, and the riders reported back that the, the conditions didn't affect them at all. They were quite um, uh, 
efficient and in tune with the with the weather and able to perform at a, at a higher level. Um, and an example here is a young guy, Rob Power, who in 2018 we did this block of indoor training leading into Strata Bianchi. He came sixth that year. Uh, this was his breakthrough um, result. He rode Sagan Valverde off his wheel in the finale. Um, look, sixth might not sound like a fantastic result, but when you're <laughs> 24 and you're dropping those guys after 180 kilometers it's a good result um and it came down to the indoor block we did before that big event so yeah Yeah. this is where the science might say this is possible or might say otherwise but you put it into practice and you see the result yourself and then you start to come up with your own methodology based on what you experience with your athletes right i mean all of this has been in the science that you you know, we've known heat has adaptation, has these effects, positive effects, Mm. but yet for some reason it's been ignored. Um, But now you sort of being forced into that situation, get the great result. Now you have buy-in and you can start to expand, sort of a beachhead. You can expand from there to to, to do indoor training blocks in a training camp before a grand tour is absolutely you know, yeah, that's revolutionary. Um, never would have thought that, you know, even 10 years ago. And, and these camps are even at altitude, right? You might be in um, uh, Andorra at altitude and you're now bring, doing some indoor training as well, right? Yeah, um, it's a, another good question there. So uh, altitude versus heat training indoors, which, which provides the, the most benefit. Altitude, we know can work, does work, but it's very hit and miss, um, very lengthy and costly as well. Um, again, I had the opportunity to run a training camp with the Orica Green Edge guys at the time, and we were in Lake Tahoe, which is a fantastic spot, by the way. I love it up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lake Tahoe, so we had two groups. We had my group, which was Caleb Ewan and Matt Heyman and, and a couple of other riders, and we were doing – the ergo sessions, uh, the double day sessions at altitude. The other group were doing uh, traditional methods of long days, altitude, lots of climbing and so on. And and we would uh, wake up in the morning with my group and we'd get on the, the ergos and, and do a high-intensity session there. And then we would uh, rest during the day and, and do an afternoon endurance session. And at the same time, the other group were going out for their long ride of the morning and they would come back just as our group was starting their afternoon session. And they were um, almost laughing at them and teasing them for, off you go, guys, go do your second session for the day. So this was an example of a perfect science study without actually doing the, the paper that goes with it. So right. two groups of elite athletes. And then it all came down to the last session the team did as, as a group, all riders together. It was a long seven-hour day, lots of climbing, and we had Adam Yates was there with us. Um, and in, in the last hours of, the, of this training ride, the only people that were on Adam Yates's wheel were Matt Hayden, Heyman and Caleb Ewan. Um, <laughs> so again, could be lots of factors, but from the double sessions, these guys were, again, aerobically so fit, they were climbing reasonably comfortable with Adam Yates. He wasn't going full gas, obviously, but riding solid. And these guys were on the wheel. Further down the mountain were the rest of the group who, who weren't laughing anymore about the, the double session. So from there, it then um, introduces interest from these riders and they're asking questions. And, and you mentioned that buy-in from athletes. 
then you get the buy-in right. and they start asking about, okay, I'm doing a camp in six weeks' time. How do I do this? Yeah, there's a whole lot to unpack there. You just you brought up the concept of double days, morning intensity, afternoon in- endurance. Mm. Prior to this, we were talking about heat adaptation. <laughs> I kind of want to break each one of those down. Um, yeah, it's a lot. If we, if we go back and if we go back and talk about heat adaptation, is it just getting on the trainer with a fan in front of you and you're, you have no shirt on, no jersey, and you're just riding and, oh, I'm sweating, therefore I'm adapting? Like, what protocols and how often are you doing those heat adaptation protocols? Because, yeah, you can be in a cool room in the garage with a fan with barely any clothes on. I assume that's not going to do the same thing as you know, a long sleeve jersey, no fan, no air movement, you know, break that down for me. Yeah, again, it comes back to the technology available and the metrics we can now uh, monitor and gather. So during Matt Heyman's training, a lot of guesswork. We weren't measuring core body temperature at the time. We didn't have the methods to do that. But now we have this device called CORE, C-O-R-E, where we can accurately measure core body temperature on the athlete, indoors or outdoors. So with this, we can now measure the temperature indoors and put in place different methods to safely increase because if we get too hot, there's that negative effect and and loss of training and so on and also that danger element. So we need to be sensible. But with this core device, for example, if I ride indoors now, wearing the core device, I will have – no fan on until I hit 38.5 degrees. Sorry, I'll talk degrees in Australia here. Mm-hmm. Until that moment, evaporation is working overtime, sweat's rolling off you. But what it's really taught me, and this was really interesting, was how effective and efficient evaporation is versus convection. So when you've got a fan on um, and you're being cooled that way, the, the, the gains, the adaptation, is not as good as evaporation. So there's still gains there, but to train indoors with the fan off until you get to around 38 and a half and then turn the fan on to, to have the extra cooling there, that's a really good method to, to benefit from, from heat training. And being able to measure that has been very interesting. Um, and that's really changed the way we approach indoor training. So whereas before there, uh, people were guessing how hot am I? It's amazing where you think, Oh, I feel so hot indoors, but you're actually not sometimes because you might have the fan on, but you, you feel hot, but you're not as hot because the convection isn't as efficient as, as a cooling method. But if you were relying on evaporation, you feel hot, but the gains are better, if that makes sense. Right. So is there a testing protocol whereby I assume there's individuality to some of this and you are you going through some type of indoor testing protocol to determine... Or, you know, I heard you mention zones, even heat zones. Yeah. Has that been determined yet? How far along are you with that theory? Yeah, that's, it's in the pipeline. It's coming now. It's, um, we have a, a method that we're uh, testing at the moment. Basically, we're breaking it down to three zones, as you said. So we've got, you know, um, safe zone, green, where there's sort of no um, benefits to the heat adaptation. The, the sweet spot zone where the benefits are there and also the performance is there. And then if we get too hot, it's obviously detrimental and there's that risk there as well. So there is a test protocol where we're comparing heart rate, power, and heat as well and finding the sweet spot for each person. Um, 
it's early stages in that, uh, but that's it's definitely out there and definitely usable now. But uh, I suspect it will evolve over the next year or so. Right. So, so if we find this zone, and it sounds like you're somewhat advocating for around or above, slightly above thirty eight point five. Um, that is now a zone where you try and increase the amount of time per week, maybe in that zone. Yeah. And this is where it leads into, um, entertainment versus intensity, I guess, and and volume. So if we were training for, uh, intensity, we might do uh, one day, a week indoors of high intensity and not focusing so much on the the volume of um, heat adaptation. Okay. So, but what I really um, promote is blocks of indoor training. So, if indoor training is part of your your methods, then rather than doing an indoor ride on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Go three days in a row, so you get that um, continuity of that of the indoor effect there. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough one now and it's an interesting one because what's more important, the volume or the intensity from the rider, obviously both play a, a factor. Um, but if we're leading into, I would put it this way in training, leading into a race, you might focus on the intensity, um, you know, once or twice per week. But as I uh-huh. said before, with the grand tour rides leading into your key event, do a block of indoor work just before your key event, whether that's a criterium, an Ironman, uh, a local road race, do a block of six to 10 days of back-to-back indoor riding, three to five days out from your key event. And if you've done the training before that, um, the benefits are going to be there. Right. Because, uh, you know, a three and a half hour ride outside coasting, et cetera, versus a two hour quality heat session indoors that volume is down indoors but and i assume the volume is down in these grand tour training camps where you're doing indoor training as well right they're not maintaining the same five hour sessions indoors every day no the, the volume is uh quite significantly reduced uh going back to the lake tahoe example uh the outdoor group were doing 30 35 hours of outdoor riding and and we were doing in total 20, 25 hours for our guys of both right. the, the indoor sessions and, and the road sessions. Um, but again, it comes back to the efficiency and, and Caleb Ewan is a good example here. Um, he's finished. Didn't second. he just lead like Milan San Remo, one of the, the final climbs? Wasn't he? He was phenomenal in that ride. He was. That, yeah, that was amazing. And this is where in 2018, in San Remo when he came second, uh, he was, we trained indoors for that. And the method there was to gain efficiency. So for a sprinter, we obviously want all that glycogen for the finale over the, the climbs and that final sprint there. But for a sprinter to do long hours, that obviously uh, dints his, his sprint, his ability. So we wanted to right. make him efficient, but also gain endurance. And this is where the double day sessions um and and the indoor sessions provide that benefit to us and allow a sprinter to to maintain that that high high intensity as well so that's an example of where we we trained indoors and we did recovery rides indoors um caleb lives in monaco a nice place to go riding outside but he would do his recovery (laughs) rides indoors um 
and from that, I knew that we're not just getting recovery, we're getting the benefit from the heat as well. So a, f- a few little tricks there for him. Absolutely. Would the same theory work for runners indoors on treadmill? Have you seen triathletes, runners incorporate the same concepts? I haven't, I haven't for running. I, I assume it would be the same. I don't see any reason why not, but I, I don't have experience with triathletes and, and running training. Um, for the bike training, obviously, it's going to be the same concept. And, yeah, if they're going to run indoors as well as ride indoors, of course, it's going to be a benefit there as well. And and if you live in a hot climate, like such as yourself, it's still this, it, it, or could you re- – replicate the same thing outdoors just simply because it is so dang hot outside you can uh, and again it comes back to that core device and just knowing what your temperature is um as right. i said before it's amazing how often you think you're really hot but you're actually not as right. hot as you think you are and so once you your mind sort of links up with or syncs up with the actual temperature in, in inside um you can sort of tolerate it more um but I guess with the outdoors, there is that constant convection cooling happening. So it's, it's right. not, not as beneficial. Whereas indoors, it's, it's a closed environment. You're going to get a good hour of that um, adaptation happening. Whereas outdoors, it's maybe not as consecutive or continual uh, with you know, coasting down yeah. hills and, and so on. So I guess the, the, the intensity of the training isn't quite there. Awesome. If you mind, um, I guess if we can move on to another concept that I know you've been incorporating and, and learning about, and if you'd care to share, um, but carb manipulation um, within training, you know, some obviously call it low carb or fasted training. Can you tell us your experience with that and, and, and why uh, you might be using it and, and when? Yeah, obviously a big conversation again and one that is um, very popular at the moment. Um, these things sort of seem to come through uh, in, in waves of interest with, with coaches right. as information becomes more relevant. But for me, it's always been something we've used, but with the indoor training and putting in place double sessions even more so because the double session allows us to really implement good stress on the body for that day. Um, and I think this is where swimming through their culture of training is probably one of the best examples of huh. putting in place training methods because these guys, they train at 5 a.m. for some reason, the first session, mm-hmm. and they do the afternoon session. And this has just been the culture of swimming for, for forever. Um, I did that in high school myself when I was on the swim team. But why do you guys train at 5 a.m.? I don't know why. They, I think it was pool time for us yeah. as high schoolers. We had to get in before the crowds. Yeah. But <laughs> I never understood why they start so early for swimming. But it's actually then to then go and ask a pro cyclist living in Andorra or Girona to start training before 11 a.m., that, that's a tough conversation, <laughs> that one. So to put it in place is difficult. But again, once you get that athlete buy-in, it's there. But getting back to the carb manipulation, a very um, prevalent topic at the moment. Everyone's talking about it and doing it. I think we're now coming back to not as extreme anymore where we were going no carbs for as long as you can basically ride until you blow and then fuel up and get home. We're now finding that that is not the, the best way to do it. So having some carbs ticking along is ideal. But for me with the, the double sessions, as an example, we would have the athlete wake up, have a good 
um, carb breakfast, perform a high-intensity ergo session indoors, and then after that ergo session, limit carbs um, during lunch and, and afternoon, afternoon tea and so on, and then do an endurance ride in the afternoon in that low-carb state for, for about three hours endurance, low-intensity. And then for the, the dinner time, fueling up with carbs again uh, to sleep with, with high carbs again. So there's many methods, there's many ways to do it, but the point here is that if you're moving that carb availability around throughout the day, that's going to force adaptation in one way or another. So there's, there's right. many ways to do it, but the double sessions, um, we want the carbs for the high intensity. And this also comes back to if you're a very anaerobic person, if you're a very good sprinter person, you need carbs, even in your long rides. So going low carbs for a sprinter for a long ride is going to affect their, their sprintability. So you really need to look at what kind of rider you are um, and how that, that carb availability is going to affect your training. But the methods we have in place now are we very rarely go zero carbs. We normally have 10 to 20 grams per hour minimum, even on a long endurance ride. Um, but it also depends on the type of athlete and the type of year. So again, um, to use Caleb Ewan as an example, in the pre-season, we would do some carb manipulation to get that aerobic efficiency to improve that endurance. But once racing started, we would never go low carbs because he's a sprinter and needs carbs to produce that lactate, to produce that sprint. So the, right. the timing of the season also is very important as well. So they're doing multiple double day sessions. Is every double day session a carb manipulation uh, day? Or are there days where they have a higher carb lunch and they're taking in more than 20 grams an hour in that second session? Yeah, we would vary it. So with the indoor blocks, normally I would aim for 10 days with one day off. So we're looking at nine days out of the 10, but in a 10 day period, we're doing nine very good sessions like that. And it would vary. So day to day, it would change. Um, okay. we, would, we would sometimes flip it around and do a low endurance ride in the morning um, in uh, what we call the fasted state and then fuel up for the afternoon high intensity as well. So we also turn it around. But I guess that conversation about low carbs and fasted is something that we sometimes confuse um, the meaning there. So even if you've had a good carb intake at dinner and you train in the morning, we call it fasted, but the, the carbs are still there. So it's not quite a low carb ride. So there's some confusion, misconception about fasted as opposed to, to low carbs and it's just a, a point to raise there that if you want to do a fasted ride in the morning try and go low carbs for your your evening meal the previous night to then really make it a, a proper fasted ride low carb ride the next day got it cool and then talking racing now are you are you pushing the the, the guys and gals to a 90 gram an hour of carb what 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 kind of targets are you are you trying to shoot for in the races when it comes down to ingesting carbs yeah so obviously 90 to even 120 is the sort of range we're mm. talking now um so that's the starting point but with the test methods we have now we can really fine-tune that for each athlete where it might be 80 to 90 for one athlete or 110 to 120 for another athlete. And this is where 
with some of the methods we have in place, uh, we can, through um, test efforts, we can understand how much lactate the person produces at certain power, what that nutritional um, cost is and what they need to, to fuel up as well. So it definitely is high carbs for, for athletes now um, in high intensity races. Uh, but then something like Milan San Remo, that's a funny one where it's actually quite a low intensity race until the last hour and a half. So right. there isn't that need to consume okay. a lot of carbs early in the race. Obviously we're consuming some, but it's not a high intensity race to put it that way. Right. This I just had a flashback. Did you watch Kent Wevel Gum and and Sam Bennett? Yes. With about fifteen K to go, he's in the winning break, favorite to win, and he gets nauseous and starts vomiting on the bike. Mm. <laughs> I think he was trying to load up a whole lot there is what I read. Um and just kind of got the better of him. <laughs> yeah. I think I would do that if I was taking in 120 grams an hour. I'd really have to train my body to to get up to that level. Yeah, train the gut. As we say, you need to train the stomach as well. Um and it's it's quite a lot. And and to take that many carbs in, to do that with um whole foods is quite difficult. It really comes right. down to a lot of gels, which as we know can be quite upsetting. As Sam knows. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um yeah, anything else? I, I know you've been obviously working on um, another indoor app, uh, Woosh. Tell us a bit about that project and uh, its development. Yeah, so look, obviously indoor training and racing is a, a different um, sport on its own now and it's a developing um, business out there for, for many people. There's lots of platforms uh, currently being developed. So, um, look, I've been with Zwift for, for many years and, and very grateful and very fortunate to have that time there. Uh, but had an opportunity to develop a new indoor platform coming from the Middle East. Um, and it's a, an exciting opportunity where we're going to do things a bit differently. We're really focusing on, on the racing element and esports. And this is where, love it or hate it, esports is here. And absolutely, it's. It's another way of bringing in um, new riders to our to our sport. It's another way of entertainment, and it's not here to replace road cycling. It's never going to replace that. It's just another way of us enjoying bike riding and the entertainment factor. And I think it is a bit misunderstood still. Um, but if we see it like um, the whole esports uh, gaming is is really evolving and a huge industry, it really is about connecting people from around the world uh, to race and train together, entertainment, um, not to be taken too seriously. Obviously, there's that high-level racing, which is very serious, but if that indoor entertainment is enough to get you to ride your bike indoors three times a week, then, then that's a win for me, I think. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm working on a, a new platform called My Whoosh, coming from the Middle East, um, hopefully released uh, in, in July is, is the plan there. Um, looking for high-level racing. Obviously, training goes with that as well. But uh, it's an exciting industry. And, um, yeah, I really encourage people to to embrace indoor racing. Uh, give it a try. Um, yeah, and, and, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. It seems like the future is now. I mean, for good or bad, obviously, COVID pushed us uh, to ride more indoors. And that introduced that concept to a whole lot of new folks 
And then the racing scene just kind of took off. And now there's EE World Championships and National Championships. And it's, like you said, it's here to stay. And who knows how it's going to develop. Um, and then with all this great advice about indoor training, you know, trying to keep that in mind as well. Um, you know, you can do a group ride. You don't have to race, but you can do a group ride and be doing your heat training. Um, and you might have lower watts because <laughs> you're trying to keep the higher yeah. uh, core temperature. Yeah. Look, there's so many ways to engage users indoors. And, and this is also for coaches too. I think coaches need to embrace indoor training and racing uh, because athletes want to have it as part of their training. Um, and if you can guide your athlete through that process of incorporating an indoor session or an indoor race into their training plan, um, there's more buy-in from the athlete and, and that stronger relationship there. So, yeah, people want to experience and want to try it. So it's also an area where coaches can make a, a name for themselves or, or have their own, their own business model out there, which is something I really, um, yeah, coming back to, to supporting coaches, through systems like Training Peaks and, and My Whoosh indoor, indoor platforms, these platforms allow coaches to uh, have their own personality and, and scale their business right. and so on. And this is where it's really important and something I'm, I'm actually quite, um, yeah, passionate about in, in supporting coaches because, like I said, I know it's, it's, it's tough to, to get coaches, I mean, sorry, athletes, athletes on board and keep them. You need to keep them engaged and entertain them and also get results at the same time. And, and to make an income out of it, you need so many athletes to, to have that viable income. And it, it's a tough process out there. So the more we all work together and, and share ideas and discuss it, the better for our industry as a whole. Yeah, I wish I had it really back when I was coaching. You know, it was tough to, you can never really create a community with athletes that are based around the entire world. But if you could have, you know, a couple sessions a week where you get all your clients together, um, really kind of creates that bond and community mm. and that would just be so fun i think as a coach to to organize so yeah. thank you kevin thanks for all the amazing knowledge good luck to you and all your athletes this year it's an, there is no perry roubaix right now uh it was what pushed off to october is that september october yeah october 2nd i think yep yep um but yeah thank you so much um and and you know mention your your uh, cycling business there and how people can contact you. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I really enjoy talking about coaching and training. Uh, I have a, a little coaching business called Powerhouse Cycling. Uh, it can be found at powerhousecycling.com.au because I'm in Australia. Um, have, have a look at it. Um, but, yeah, also any coaches that want to get in touch and, and ask questions or yeah, just connect. I'm, I'm always open to that. And like I said, I, I like to support coaches as much as I support athletes as well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, yeah, I'd love to follow up with you again someday. So thanks for all the great advice. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the training peaks coach cast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.